This New America NYC event took place on September 10th, 2015, and is titled Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places, Stories of Innovation from the Other Side of the World, and features Elmira Bayrosley, co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted, and Matthew Bishop, U.S. Business Editor and New York Bureau Chief of The Economist. I was actually reading the book last week um, in Silicon Valley uh, as I was going around sort of hearing various entrepreneurs and venture capitalists complain about how tough things are getting in Silicon Valley because, you know, it's, Oakland is now too expensive for your nannies to live. And, um, you know, the, 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 the kids out of Stanford are wanting to know what order of priority they will be there for their options if in the event of liquidation, uh, which is a big concern there as well at the moment. That. Uh, you know, the unicorns may be all overvalued. Um, uh, but, you know, and, and then switching to people who have real difficulties, uh, but are overcoming them um, in the other part of the, in the rest of the world. And I think this book is, you know, really an important book because it, it, um, it shows for me why the American sort of confidence in Silicon Valley remaining the dominant powerhouse of entrepreneurship for the world, you know, that, that, those, those days are already over. Um, and, you know, Uber may be appearing to drive everything before it, but Elmira tells a very different story. Um, I first got to know her when she was working um, for Endeavor, which was a, an organization that helped um, entrepreneurs who had already got started in the developing world, but needed help getting to that breakthrough level where they could really have a big impact. And, um, you know, I think probably at the time when you first were pitching me on stories for The Economist about that, Elmira, it was, uh, um, I was quite a, it was quite a hard sell to persuade someone from The Economist to really believe that these entrepreneurs could be high-impact entrepreneurs. But as you read the book, you will see um, these great characters come to life who are um, every bit as um, you know, magnetic in their personalities as, as, as Steve Jobs. So I just want to um, start, Elmira, by just uh, getting you to uh, tell us a, a couple of your favorite um, anecdotes from, from the process of writing the book. Who were the people that you know, most inspired you as you went around searching out for these entrepreneurs? Okay, I mean, that's a good place to start. I mean, although I could probably dissect a lot of the things that you said, especially about Silicon Valley becoming such an expensive place to live, because I think one of the things that I found in writing this book is a lot of the entrepreneurs that I actually do profile were once connected to Silicon Valley, and they left precisely because it was, became too expensive for them to actually be in Silicon Valley. But what actually, um, in terms of what inspired me to write this book, um, I started out my career at, at the State Department. I was always very interested in interna international development and foreign policy. And I, I worked at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, and then I went down to the State Department um, working on, at the time, uh, critical issues like the Bal it was the end of the Balkan War, so I got to work on the Dayton Peace Accords. Um, and then I actually got a chance to go and live in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. I lived in Sarajevo for, for four years. And it was really when I was in Sarajevo that I came to the realization that the things that we were doing to try to rehabilitate the country, to actually try to revive it from this post-war and this trauma that it had, had very, 
we had this idea of what would work, but it had very little connection to what was actually going on in the ground. Um, we had come up with a lot of points about law and human rights and civil society, but the reality is everywhere I went, people talked about the need for jobs. And as somebody who studied, studied political science, um, and I didn't study business, and I didn't really, I wasn't interested in that world at all, um, I didn't, I didn't know the first place to start. Well, how do you start, how do you, I mean, how do you create jobs? Um, and so I started looking into it. I, I said, okay, well, I'm in Bosnia and I wanna go, I, I, how, how do we help these people? If, they, if this is the thing that they want, if they don't want these human rights reforms, and, and one woman actually said to me, she said, you know, you come here with your ideals and your human rights and your civil society. She said, but that doesn't matter to us when our sons and our brothers and, and our daughters have to go to Europe in order to find jobs. And that really resonated with me. And so I said, okay, well, how do you, how do you, how do you create jobs? And I really stumbled upon Muhammad Yunus and microfinance and social entrepreneurship. And that's really where, where my story of how this book came about started. It really came from a place of how, how do you turn countries like Bosnia or anywhere else from developing into, into developed? Um, and when I, when I started working at Endeavor, I, really, I still didn't know much about entrepreneurship, especially high-impact entrepreneurship, because I think that the notion when you say entrepreneurship, people always think about Silicon Valley. And people always think about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and they think about um, these big names, and they associate it mainly with technology. And so you don't think about it, some, anything like that happening outside of the United States. Um, and when you do think, when people do talk about entrepreneurship outside of the United States, they talk about it in, in this microfinance, you think about it as, as people doing kind of um, handicrafts and selling it by the side of a road, and that's what, that's what they think entrepreneurs do outside of the United States. Except when I worked at Endeavor, but then I also when I traveled around, I saw people leading these globally innovative companies and their stories weren't being told. And they were doing it in places like Turkey and Nigeria and Mexico and Brazil. And it was actually in Turkey where my, my parents are from, um, and they're, they're sitting in the back. Um, um, yay, round of applause for Mama and Vera Hasley. Um, anyway, it was actually when I was in Turkey that I, I actually came across, it was at a hotel in Kars, and they, it was a rundown hotel where I didn't expect there to be any, anything working because the, the paint was peeling from the walls, um, and they had Wi-Fi, and I was really surprised that they had Wi-Fi, and when I looked at what the, who, who made the Wi-Fi, it was AirTies. And Airtize is this company that was created by Bülent Çelebi, who is a Turkish-American like me, but who had who'd been actually an executive in Silicon Valley and went back to Turkey to start this company. And I knew about his story because he was one of the entrepreneurs that we helped at Endeavor. I talked to the, the hotel desk clerk about Bülent and his story, and the hotel desk clerk said to me, oh my god, do you know that he is a Turk? And I was quite surprised that he knew about Bülent's story and he told me that he said, you know, here is this Turk who was in Silicon Valley that came back to start this technology company in Turkey. And I think it was in that very moment that I actually realized that 
this is what that woman in Bosnia who said we need to create jobs was talking about, and where I made the connection about how entrepreneurs actually do make a difference. It's not just in the jobs that they're creating, but in becoming a role model, Bülent was actually also inspiring other people in Turkey to actually think about opportunities in a different way. Because this young hotel clerk said to me, you know, I'd like to study engineering and I'd actually like to maybe, maybe launch a startup too, which was a very different narrative than what I had heard going to Turkey as a child where everybody wanted to everybody wanted to go to America nobody wanted to stay in turkey and so how how big a phenomenon do you think that is of this returning home from silicon valley with this desire to be an entrepreneur <laughs> in your own, own country well i think i think globalization has you know erased economic borders i think we've seen it over you know over the past two decades where you know we've seen the rise of china and we've seen the rise of india and we're hearing about you know interesting things happening all over the world in the middle east and in in latin america and mexico and brazil um and i think globalization played a really big part of that where the economic just that phenomenon has just erased those economic borders and i think what has happened with the phenomenon of globalization um and in many ways i mean i definitely referred to thomas friedman's work while I was doing this, although I didn't sit in taxi cabs and ask the taxi cab drivers what, what, what they thought, um, uh, is you, you do see it. You see, you see globalization you know, happening in these countries because you had a lot of people outsourcing, especially in Silicon Valley. I mean, once, it was once where they used, to make, they used to make and build the microchips and the computers, but then they started outsourcing it to places like India, to Israel, and to China, and to, and to Taiwan and South Korea. Well, what happens is when you outsource those jobs, you not only are creating jobs in other places and enabling people to have jobs and to move into the middle class, which is what has happened in a lot of these places, but you're also transferring knowledge. And so when Apple opens up its, its factory in China, and when Intel is moving its resources to Israel and to South Korea, you're actually also transferring that knowledge and saying to people, if I can actually build this here too for an American company, why can't I do that myself? And so I think you see that you, you, you've seen that and you've seen the Chinese and the Indians and the Brazilians and, and a lot of these economies that we're constantly here about do that. And now you're seeing the second wave of entrepreneurs start these innovative companies that are actually not, a lot of them, you know, we, we hear a lot about the copycat companies, but a lot of them are actually going out there and trying to solve problems for their own countries. And well, the let's talk a bit about, I mean, it's one of the cases that you, you take up, and it's interesting because I think each of your examples, each chapter is based around one character that you found in each, each one's in a different country, but it's not just the country that you're distinguishing, it's the particular problem that they're, they're having to solve, I guess, as their highest priority in order to be a successful entrepreneur. But I was very struck by your Nigerian story, um, which is all about building a payment system using mobile phones and so forth. And, and I think probably a lot of people think that if there's going to be a leapfrog technology where some developing country builds its economy, its economic infrastructure around a basically superior technology to what developed countries have already, um, you know, maybe mobile payments and that kind of the whole mobile finance area, maybe that 
thing. I mean, what, what, what's your take on, on that and how does your story illustrate that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely wanted to do something around mobile phones because I think we hear about it and associate it with Africa a lot. Um, and it just in, in looking at where, where, would I, where would I find that, and a lot of people pointed me to, to Kenya. But I actually thought Nigeria, I thought, you know, here's the most populous country in Africa. What's going on there? I mean, surely, you, you know, there, there has to be something interesting there. And sure enough, I found um, Tayo Obisu, who runs a mobile payments company called Paga. Um, and I got to spend time with him in Lagos. And what was interesting about being in Lagos and the obstacle that I, I, I tell that, that Tayo is overcoming is, is poor infrastructure. But it's not just physical, poor physical infrastructure. And because when you're in when you're in Nigeria, you know, the electricity does go out and the roads are bad and you know there's problems with the bridges. But a lot of that is manifested in the fact that there's just poor financial infrastructure. 80% of the country is unbanked. People, the majority of the country don't, they don't have access to a bank. And so what they do is they end up you know, literally hauling sacks of cash. And when, when you're put in a position where you can't actually store your money, you, you want to get rid of it. And it never accumulates into being an asset. And so one of the biggest problems in Nigeria is how do you move money? And so Taya started Paga, along with a, a number of other, other people, because it, wasn't, it was something that was actually started in Kenya through, through Vodafone and Safaricom with M-Pesa. Um, but what was interesting, being in, that, being in that environment and seeing what Tayo was doing, was that they're actually innovating on mobile payments and, fi and financial technology at a faster rate than we are here in the United States. And so, you know, scarcity, people always say how scarcity is the mother of invention, and I think that's very true in the case of, of Africa, where... We do have mobile payment technologies here. I mean, we have Square, we have Venmo, and, and a number of, of other payment platforms, but they're not widespread, and, they're, not, and they're, they're, they're actually not even profitable. And so when you're seeing the, where financial technology and financial innovation is taking place, it is taking place in Africa. And so the mobile phone is, is helping them leapfrog innovation in a way, not only just economically, but it's helping them actually move innovation forward in a rate faster than we're here, we're, that we're doing and here do, in the West. And, 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 so I guess the thing that, um, I mean, you, you alluded it to yourself, uh, yourself earlier, I mean, the thing that I guess we focused on with Silicon Valley is how its companies like Uber are able to just dominate the world. Um, and maybe the emerging market story has historically been much more around imitation and you know, lower cost local versions. But um, how much, I mean, do you really, do you think that, there, that we are going to see some, you know, serious leapfrogging or, or you know, companies coming over here that um, are from somewhere like Nigeria or from, I mean, I guess China would be the one we would look to first. And you have the Xiaomi case, which is a very interesting uh, story that maybe you'll tell us about as well in terms of, I mean, that phone that they're producing seems to be you know, a genuine threat to Apple and Samsung. Tell us a bit about, I mean, you, 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 you expect there to be some uh, big winners in America and Europe that come out of the kind of stories that you're telling in the book. Yeah, I mean, the, the, 
the entrepreneurs that, that I write, I mean, Bilan with his air ties. So Bilan creates wireless routers, but he also um, he does set-top boxes, which um, streams internet television. And that's actually penetrated Europe. I and mean, most European televisions use air ties technology. And he's also signed a deal with AT&T. So your, you know, IPTV technology through AT&T is, is powered by, by a Turk. And, and China, I think the example of China, I mean, Jack Ma has already come into the United States with Alibaba. And Xiaomi, which was an interesting company that I, I, when, I when I had got into China, um, I actually had a bit of a struggle about who, what, which entrepreneur I would, I would profile. Um, it's such a big country, and I think it's been so overexposed that I think a lot of people are fatigued by Westerners coming into China to talk, talk to, talk to the entrepreneurs. Um, and I was sitting in a, in a, a American VC's office in Shanghai, and he said, "You should, you should go to Xiaomi. This, it's this really interesting company that I think is going to be big." And I said, "Sure, I'll go there. Why not?" Um, and sure enough, um, you know, two years later, it's 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 soon. I think soon to be one of the, or is it the most? No, Uber is the most valuable company. It's that's number one, and Xiaomi is number two. Um, and Xiao, Beijing created Xiaomi, which is the rival of Apple, and it creates it creates smartphones. But what what Lejeune has done with Xiaomi is that whereas your Apple phone you have to get it for about eight hundred dollars, Lejeune sells his his smartphones, which are of of the same caliber and quality, at at cost, and he generates his revenue through um, apps by people getting on and going to his app store, and that's how and that's how he's generating his his revenue. And his whole idea is how do I actually bring everyone in? And how do I actually engage in China? But when you go to China and his, his launch events, I mean, you would think that they're like these like Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, rock star events. Um, because, and, and I understood why. It's because the people in the audience are actually engaged in the product. And they're seeing their applications and their contributions on the Xiaomi phone. And they feel like they're a part of it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how Xiaomi actually penetrates the United States. I know that they've talked about trying to come here, but they're actually looking, their, their market strategy is actually an interesting one. They're looking to go, they've already gone into India, and they're looking to go into Brazil, into Turkey, and into emerging markets first, and, and try to beat Apple in those markets, and, and dominate the market share so there. There's a question, I guess, with the, what's been happening in China recently, it's even more topical. Uh, you know, business people, I think for a long time, American business people have talked about a company like um, Alibaba, or they talk about um, some of the companies like, like Xiaomi and others, and they will say something like, well, we're not really sure if there's any real there, there, and how much support are they getting from the government, and are they just ripping off our technology uh, and undermining the IP system and so forth. I mean, what, what's your sense of... I mean, is that just Americans making excuses for the fact that they're not competing as well as they did against these uh, local players? Or is there, is there a real, you know, as you went there, did you find you, you had the same degree of confidence in interviewing people at Xiaomi as you would do if you were interviewing people at Apple if they would give you an interview? I think, there's, I think that there's a lot of legitimacy in, in the criticisms that you hear that there are a lot of copycats and because China is a closed economy and the government is controlling it that 
that they're not innovating. And I write that in my chapter, you know, I, you know, I say, you know, this is not necessarily innovation. A lot of it is adaptation of, of what they're doing. But what I found in the difference, and I think this is why, I think why, why the book is so, is so relevant that, because I have spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, everywhere I, I went, I saw a hunger to actually create the next big thing in a way that I don't see in Silicon Valley anymore. And even though when you're looking at the, you know, the unicorn list and it's dominated by Uber and Airbnb, they're very valuable companies. Um, there's a lot of question about what actual value they bring to society. Um, you don't feel materially better off by being able to know that you can go and pay three times the normal price for a cab, but get home in the rain tonight when you leave after this session? Well, I mean, that, there's that, but when, what, what happens when Uber creates its own self-driving car and it puts all of those drivers out of business? And these are the things that Silicon Valley is driving towards. It's actually thinking about, it's thinking about innovation on a piece of paper and through a pure monetary lens. And it's actually not thinking about the impact that it's having on people. Whereas when you look at why Silicon Valley became the, the, the mecca of tech, tech entrepreneurship that it did, it was a, it, they created products and services that actually moved society forward. It moved people up and it helped, it, it helped society as a whole. And so, yeah, I mean, Uber is providing jobs for a lot of people, but, you know, they're resisting calling those people employees. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that we can, I, I don't want this to be a discussion about Uber, but I think the one thing that I want people to take away from my book is to question what this idea about entrepreneurship and innovation is. And it's not purely about creating the biggest gadget that's the most expensive and the most valuable, but it's what are you doing? How are you creating opportunities, spreading value, and changing the socioeconomic landscape for people? And it's, it's, that's happening, I, I hate to say it, but it's actually happening outside of Silicon Valley. It's happening outside of the United States. But I mean, historically, I think you'd have to concede that entrepreneurial innovations always tend to destroy the previous set of jobs that, uh, that, that were associated with the old way of doing things. I mean, you, you don't have, I mean, Henry Ford, you know, the blacksmith went out of business, basically, as, as, the, as the car took over. And, you know, I, I guess Uber will only succeed with driverless cars if, if it's doing a better, say, if it's safer that way than having humans drive. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know whether in that sense, your argument makes complete sense to me. Well, and there's a, that, that and, and I'm glad that you brought up that point because I actually have a chapter that takes place in Russia and that it illustrates the importance of government and the government's role in not only entrepreneurship, but, but your role as a citizen, whether you're an entrepreneur or just anyone in this process because while the technology is moving forward, our public policy is not. And we're not having those discussions. We're, we're litigating everything, and we're, we're, we're taking things through a legal route, but we're not actually changing, we're not having a public discourse about what's going to happen with, with the technology that is advancing. The one thing that you do see around the world is countries, whether it's Turkey, Nigeria, and Mexico, they're actually reforming their policies and their laws to actually match the economic realities of what is going on. And Russia, I have in, in my book, because I found this one woman, Yana Yakovlova, 
who, whose business is actually not that interesting. I mean, I, 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 didn't, I don't think her business is, it's a chemical company, it trades chemicals, it's not very innovative. Um, it's not very, you know, it makes good money, but it's not, it's not particularly profitable. But I think Yana as an entrepreneur is absolutely fascinating. She um, started this chemical company called Sofex um, right after the Soviet Union collapsed. She was a, she was a college student, um, didn't, didn't really know what to do, and she had an opportunity to, to start this chemical company with somebody from her neighborhood. And they started this chemical company where they would get chemicals and, and sell them to factories, so they were just an intermediary. Um, fast forward about 10, 15 years, and Putin's in power, and um, he's coming down hard on the oligarchs. He's, he's, he's coming down on Khodorkovsky. He, throws, he arrests Khodorkovsky and um, the head of Yukos Oil. And there's a real shakedown of, of business in Russia. And it really comes down under the, the thumb of the Kremlin. And it really trickles down to poor Yana, who's running this you know, mid-sized business where drug enforcement police come to Yana's office and ask her to be part of a drug ring that they're part of and ask her to provide a chemical that's used to synthesize heroin. And after she refuses, she has to encounter harassment and she ends up in jail. They arrest her one day. There's on, they just throw her in jail. There's, there's no due process. Um, and she fights the charges. And I think Yana's story I put in there to illustrate the point that a lot of people talk, when you hear people in Silicon Valley saying what's the best thing government can do, um, it's, it's that it can get out of my way. And while I'm, I'm totally a proponent of government not interfering, I think that there is a role of the government and it's up to, to uphold the law and it's up to uphold the rule of law and, and to perform its role as a government, not only in upholding justice, but also in reforming policies and laws so that it matches the economic realities of what is happening. And I think Yana's story really illustrates that. It was really, it was interesting to spend time with her because she not only fought the charges, but then she actually worked with work with the Russian government to actually bring a lot of reform to the business community. But was your sense that Russia is, you know, is that a place where you're going to see the next Steve Jobs or whatever emerge? I think of all the countries, if there was a potential for the next Steve Jobs, it is in Russia. I think, you know, you have all the cybersecurity firms. Kaspersky is one of the top cybersecurity firms in, in the world. Um, I think the the tradition from the Soviet Union of science and technology. I mean, the number of Nobels that the Russians have in physics and chemistry and, and science. And I think they're just their educational system and is, is very much geared towards that. I think as a culture and as a society, I think that they're a lot more advanced than a lot of the other places I went to because I went and I would go to these um, incubators and these accelerators and listen to entrepreneurs pitch. And by far, I thought the Russian entrepreneurs and what they were proposing and pitching was far more advanced than anywhere else I've had. And I say in my book that if there's anywhere that would rival Silicon Valley, it, it would be, Mo but, I mean, it presumably, would be Moscow. I mean, I'm presuming there's not much of a reverse journey. I mean, you hear a lot of Russians in Silicon Valley from Sergey Brin down. I mean, but there's not much of that reverse flow of people going home. No, to, and people are home leaving to now. The, the bosom of Putin and everything. Yeah. No, and there are now. Now, I mean, the the guy who founded the uh, Russian Facebook, he's had he's been forced to leave, and 
a lot of these Russian entrepreneurs are leaving. They're not, they're not precisely because, because they don't have any protections and they are afraid of the government. Now, on the other hand, you then look at Mexico and I mean, I guess one of the other great you know, notorious characters and of, of the world of business, Carlos Slim, and how, you know, I guess the, the, the Asimoglu book about um, why nations fail really identified the monopolistic culture of Mexico and the fact that the elite really control the economic system and therefore it's very hard for innovation to happen, entrepreneurship to happen. I mean, you have a very optimistic story there, which you know, I was struck by how actually how much progress has been made by your entrepreneur, even in an industry where Carlos Slim had been historically the dominant player. Yeah, monopolies, I think, is, you know, one thing is a lot of the obstacles that a lot of these entrepreneurs incur, I think they, you know, monopolies is a problem, I think, not just in Mexico, but in all, in, in all the countries that, that, I, that I have in my book. Um, and my entrepreneur in, in Mexico, Enrique, runs an alternative energy company called Optima Energia. And he, he started it precisely because it was one of the areas where the, where, where the, the monopolists hadn't focused in on. It, um, the monop, the monop, it was the government that had a monopoly over, over electricity and over the oil company, Pemex. Um, but none of the big businesses had had any control over energy, and so he decided. Well, I, you know, the government's not doing anything about alternative energy, and we've got a lot of resources here in Mexico. Let me see if I if I can make a go of this of this company. And what's interesting is I've met a lot of entrepreneurs in Mexico who were doing the same thing. They were they were identifying niches and starting businesses in places where either the monopolists hadn't gone into or where it could complement the monopolist businesses. And so their idea was, with I think a lot of entrepreneurs here too, they think, you know, can I get, can I get bought out by Google or can I get bought out by, by a, lot of these, a lot of these big companies? Um, and Enrique, um, Enrique did that with, with Optima Energia. But what's interesting with Enrique's story is while he, he, he honed in on this niche and started alternative energy, which actually started to become very profitable for him, globalization came along too. And so the monopolists had to change too because once, once world economies were open and it was, it was no longer a competition of inside, inside each country, but it became a, it became a competition of, of countries against countries. I think the monopolists also owned up to the fact that they could no longer do business in the traditional ways that they, that they did. And that if they actually wanted to continue to be the big guys, the big fat cats in their countries, they actually needed to go and look how could they actually expand their businesses or do something innovative because one of the things that I think you see monopolists do is that they're not, they don't care about innovation, they just care about charging people a lot of money um, and providing them with the least, be with just very basic services. But I think the monopolists saw that with, with borders going down, with, with American companies going up, and with China and Brazil and all these other countries rising, that they actually needed to work with the entrepreneurs in Mexico and help them rise up. And 
So I think Enrique's story is also a story of globalization. I think Enrique rightly identified a spot that the, that the monopolists hadn't honed in on, but I also think that he was also helped by external circumstances. So another theme you look at, which I think is very important, um, is this, I think, tendency in, in, in various parts of the developing world to take a business approach to meeting basic needs that I think in developed countries we think it should be the role of government. So, you know, I, I've certainly come across lots of companies around providing water, uh, basic clean water, and uh, we ran a cover of The Economist recently on the rise of private education, the $2 a week school. Um, but you talk about uh, the private ambulance service in India. Tell us a bit about that, and did that raise any qualms in your mind about, you know, surely an ambulance service shouldn't be a, a for-profit company? And I still think it should be. <laughs> I still think it shouldn't be. I think it should be a public service. Um, and so my entrepreneur in India, his challenge is overcoming corruption um, in India, which I, I think again, you know, corruption is something that that a lot of these, a lot of the countries that I that I go to encounter. Um, Shafi Mother started one two nine eight, um, really at, after a personal incident where his mother was choking and he had a hard time calling an ambulance because Shafi was also one of these, you know, he was in business, he was working in the white, white collar professional world, in the corporate world. Um, he had no interest in, in healthcare or, or being an activist at all. But I think that that scare really kind of propelled him to start, start this for-profit ambulance company. Well, how does it work? So how it works... You're buying there, you know, buy a car <laughs> or run into a cow or well, something. That's, ter and that's terrible. You have to pay them there on the spot, do you? Or? Um, no, if, if it is an accident, um, 1298 does provide services for free, as they did during the, the bombings in, in Mumbai uh, in 2008, I think it was. Um, and, and, they and they work with hospitals. They work with hospitals on that. But um, when, if you're calling for an ambulance, which if you call the number 1298... How it works is if you're going to a private hospital, you pay a full fare, and if they're taking you to a public hospital, then you pay a subsidized fee. And so the people who are going to the private hospitals, who interestingly enough, those are, those are more of the patrons of 1298 are people who are going to the private hospitals, and they cover the cost for those. Um, that's interesting, because I mean, I think you, you, also, you look at a number of different other examples. I mean, the Ayurvind, I hospital as well. I mean, where they have this hybrid model, right. where there seems to be much more of a social contract embedded in the business model that you, you know, charge the rich full price plus, and then you cross-subsidize providing an um, affordable service to everybody else. And I mean, I, do you think that might spread back to the developed world as inequality grows and so forth? Well, I hope so. I mean, the, you know, we have it with the, the state university system here. Um, but slowly, I think that that's starting to disappear. So I, I certainly hope that that's something that that people understand is 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 necessary, and it does work because it, when when you do see it in India, I think people are interested. Finally, I think when, as India started growing economically, and they started seeing a lot of entrepreneurs like Shafi create these services that add value to Indian society, I think everybody feels that, you know, they're buying into society, which is why we should all pay taxes. So um, the other case study that you have in the book um, 
is about Pakistan. And I think you originally wanted to call the book Steve Jobs Lives in Pakistan. And uh, I mean, the title you have is very good, but I would have preferred the Steve Jobs <laughs> title myself. But um, take notes. <laughs> but um, what, you know, what, what's your, tell us, what's the significance of your Pakistan story? Um, I got to go to Pakistan in 2010 um, as part of uh, a team that had been asked by the Pakistani government to come and do an assessment of the country's entrepreneurial landscape. And um, I, I actually didn't know what to, what to expect. I think a lot of my notions about Pakistan are shaped by CNN and the things that I, I see on, on social media, which is, which is fairly negative. And um, I was actually pleasantly surprised when I landed in, in Islamabad and then I went to Karachi and Lahore, um, where, you know, life is normal and things go on. In Lahore, they have a vibrant IT community. And I, I met an entrepreneur named Monas Rahman who had been in Silicon Valley. He was working at Intel. He had gotten um, an engineering degree at the University of Wisconsin and then got a job at Intel and then... Um, actually uh, finished a, a master's degree at Stanford, but then decided, you know, Pakistan was doing really well, and this was in, in 2006, 2007, and, and it was. Its economy was, it was growing, and a lot of people expected, you know, maybe the Pakistan story will, will replicate in the India story. And he thought, I'm going to give it a try, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to Pakistan, and, and I'm going to open up. The internet is starting to, to blossom and bloom in, all over the world, and I'm going to an internet company in Pakistan, um, and like any sensible person, started a dating website, um, which was, it was very, it, it was very, pro he was, it was really profitable, his service, he, he was telling me how he was panicked that his service. Dating or marriage? It was, it was, it, it was a meeting, it was a meeting platform, he said, <laughs> where you can meet people. Um, um, and now he, that, that's one part of his business, but his other part of his business is a job search engine, which is like monster.com or LinkedIn, where you can actually find, where you can find, uh, where you can find jobs. And so what I found there, what was interesting to me, I had gone with this notion that insecurity was the problem in Pakistan. And it, and it certainly is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be I'm not going to lie about that. I mean, I think that insecurity is a huge is a huge problem in Pakistan. But I think what it's a symptom of a larger problem where in Pakistan, you there's a problem where people aren't able. There's lack of collaborative space, and so when you're thinking about entrepreneurship and how companies are created, this myth of it happening in this garage and people being alone. Um, you know, sure, maybe Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs started Apple in in a garage, but they perfected it with a team of people. And they scaled it up with a team of people. And I think one of the problems that you have in Pakistan is this lack of collaborative space where people can come together and collaborate and exchange ideas. Pakistan's geography doesn't lend to it. I think it's very- Whereas many other developing countries now have hubs and things. I mean, you go to Kenya and there's right. a couple of really good ones in Nairobi and- Right, yeah. in, is it, in Istanbul, Istanbul in, yeah. in Monterey, in Sao Paulo, in Brazil. Um, you know, in in Cape Town, in South Africa, I think you know there's a, there are a lot of examples. I think there are a lot of examples around the world. But I think in Pakistan, I think the I think the geography doesn't lend for it. But I also think culturally, I think there's you know I think that there's a lot of 
there's a lot of gen, you know, everything is segregated by by gender, and I think that there's a lot of problems that they have to overcome. But what, by Mona's creating this internet business, what he's done is he's he's actually shown how popular it is because he's he's doing really well, and he's actually spurned a lot of other. Pakistani engineers and techies to actually start other IT and internet companies, which are actually working with a lot of companies in Silicon Valley where they're doing um, uh, business process outsourcing and working and doing back-end office stuff for a lot of technology companies here in the United States. And, it's, and there's a really thriving um, tech community going on there. But people are starting to collaborate and do this over the internet. And you hear about it in the Middle East a lot. You hear about in Saudi Arabia how women are starting to create jobs and online platforms. And it's really becoming this, this phenomenon where it's starting to really change a lot of things throughout the Middle East. So I have three more questions I'm going to ask you. And then I'm going to throw it open to everybody else. The first is you know, your, your starting point was, you know, with this whole entrepreneurship story, was being in the political position, working for the State Department, um, and thinking about how do you take a failed state or a post-conflict state and rebuild it and so forth. And you started to see entrepreneurship as the, you know, maybe that's going to be the answer. How far is, I mean, has, has this, are your view, what are your views now on the role of foreign aid versus trade and jobs and so forth? Is, is, there, is there still a, a role for if for, for USAID and for the State Department in, in these countries in promoting jobs, or is this something we just we should stand aside and let them do their own thing? I, I mean, I, in, in, in the closing, and I think it's on the very last page, I say that how you know the entrepreneurs in this book have done more than any international organization, government, or nonprofit organization that I had ever seen before. Um, at the same time, I think while, while these entrepreneurs are doing more than any USAID or DFID or, or World Bank is doing, I, I also, I, I don't think it's black and white. I think that there's a role that the World Bank and the IMF and USAID does play. I think that they just need to understand what that role is. And I think it is in encouraging these governments to reform their policies so that these entrepreneurs can do businesses easier, and I think the World Bank has done that with the doing the, the you know the, the the doing business report. I think that has gotten a lot of that is that has been very successful, and it's an, an example of what the, what the World Bank should be doing in doing that ranking and saying you know how many days does it take to register a company and and looking at the various aspects and the mechanics of what it takes to be an entrepreneur and providing that particular service. I think that there's a role that aid and philanthropy can play, especially in, in things like education and healthcare. I think there's a great role for the Gates Foundation and what it's doing to help that. I think it I think all of those things do have a part. I think it's I think it's great to see that these entrepreneurs who understand their their countries and the needs and the challenges of their countries rising up and 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 a lot of USAID and World Bank people supporting them as well. So the second question is about the entrepreneurs themselves. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, is there, was there a, is there a common factor that made this, this set of stories possible and made it timely now? That did something change in the last 
in our 15 years, one particular thing more than anything else that really enabled them to thrive. And a subsidiary question to that is, you know, is there one more thing that needs to, to change for them that's going to really allow them to break through onto the, you know, to, to be, be, be really dominant players in the global economy? Um, all the entrepreneurs that I came across, and I mean, I went to more than seven countries, I think a lot of the, the one thing that I saw among all of them is they're, they're, they're truly, I mean, they're, you hear the cliches about them being visionary and they're, and they're passionate, but they're also very brave. I think it's very, you have, you have to be really brave to be an entrepreneur. And you have to be really brave to be an entrepreneur in a place like Nigeria or Pakistan or Russia or Turkey. But what made, has something changed that's made them feel more able to be brave? I now? think it is, I think it is, I think it is globalization. I think it's, it's the fact, I think that you've, I think there have been brave men and women in these countries for, for decades. I think the reason that we haven't been able to see them, the reason that they haven't been able to succeed is that they're, they're, the obstacles were too high and the conditions were impossible for them to overcome. I think globalization has enabled these men and women to, to well, actually... They all feel part of a... They see themselves as global people. They're very informed by the... I mean, they've read about all the people in Silicon Valley and they, they learn a lot from the global best practice and... Yeah. And I do, and, and one of the reasons I say Silicon Valley has gone global is that they do apply Silicon Valley practices. It's one of the challenges that Bilans had when he started Airtize in Turkey, because in Turkey there are a lot of really great, talented engineers, but Turkey didn't have a tradition of you know taking initiative and being creative and just starting something on your own as you do here in the United States. They weren't encouraged to do that, and so he had to bring in this culture where he needed to encourage his employees to actually innovate on, on the technologies that, that they were forming. Um, and so a lot of the entrepreneurs have brought in those, brought in those lessons. But the one thing that differentiates the entrepreneurs in my book than the entrepreneurs that we're seeing in the United States is they really, ha they really have this vision of what problem am I solving? And, and how am I doing it? Um, and I feel like we veered off here in the United States where we're thinking about innovation as purely this futuristic thing like driverless cars and drones and, and robots and artificial intelligence when we're not even solving the problems that we have of today. I mean, I look at the refugee crisis in the Middle East and I just think to myself, you know, what, you know, can't Silicon Valley solve this problem? But the thing is, they're not even paying attention to it. Um, and is there is there is this now an unstoppable phenomenon? Do you think, or is there one thing that needs to happen still to really that, that would help all these entrepreneurs be much more successful than they are already? I think we're just. I I, I think the stories are just beginning. Um, I, I think these are the pioneers, and I think in a generation or two we are going to see we are going to see the next Steve Jobs coming from one of these places. I think. I think we're, we've just begun to hear about these stories, and I think we have just begun to see yet when innovations will come out of, from the other side of the world. And so, and lastly, when we're sitting here, it's a New America Foundation event. We're sitting here with a, in, in the Civic Hall, which is a, a, a place full of entrepreneurs in New York City. I mean, what, what does all this mean for America, for American entrepreneurs? I think I think it's I think it's great. I think 
So there's nothing to worry about. I mean, the, gla the glass is full, Matthew. I think, you know, we can see it's not a comp it's not a zero-sum game. You know, if, if, if China wins, we don't lose. Um, in the same way that Silicon Valley became the phenomenon it is, and it helped change corporate America. I mean, it helped change the business models that we have here in the United States. I think that China, you know, growing and Nigeria growing, not only are they going to give us innovations, but we're going to learn we're going to learn things from them that we can import here, and it will help improve our lives. I mean, that's the whole point about entrepreneurship. It's about iteration, and it's about learning and, and applying it so that it adds value to all of our lives. So I think it's a win-win it's a for everyone, and I think it's great that you're seeing the rise of entrepreneurs everywhere because it means that we're, we're, we're rushing towards everyday solutions much faster. Round of applause for Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.